You're going to love this. Just love it. In the middle with you once again from Pacifica Radio's KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly citizen, investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all around swell fellow from bradblog.com. As heard on 90.7 FM in LA, 91.7 FM KYAQ in Oregon. Coast to coast and around the globe on kpfk.org, on the Progressive Voices Channel, on Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, RadioOrNot.com, and now Radio Sputnik, five days a week. Oh yeah, you can also subscribe for free to our shows at Stitcher, at TuneIn, and of course at iTunes. Glad you could join us today. Another big show. Uh, we got a lot to get to, uh, including a guest that I'm very excited uh, to talk to here. A Republican. A Republican on the broadcast? Yes, I, I, and I look forward to it. Um, got a lot to cover, as I say. We'll see how much we can get in, including, by the way, carbon dioxide hits a new milestone globally. And it is not a good one. We will be talking with Desi Doyen about that a little bit later, along with another oil bomb went off in North Dakota, these uh, these oil train cars that are exploding now left and right, it seems. Um, that fire is ongoing even as we speak. Uh, there might be, and I put the emphasis on might, there might be some good news concerning some new regulations for these uh, oil trains, which are proliferating since, the, uh, since fracking has begun, since the discovery of the... Uh, uh, shale, Bakken shale oil up there near North Dakota. And that's one of the reasons why we're seeing so many explosions. So we'll have more on that in a bit. Uh, also, the state of emergency. Congratulations, Baltimore. The state of emergency has now been lifted in your fine city. The National Guard has been ordered to withdraw by the uh, by the state's Republican governor there. So uh, maybe thing, everything's back to normal in Baltimore. Maybe. We'll see. Actually, we hope it's not. Hopefully, it's better than it was before. Uh, we'll see how things go after these uh, charges move forward against the cops that are said to have uh, murdered Freddie Gray up there in Baltimore. So the state of emergency is lifted in Baltimore, although not in Texas. Not in Texas, where they are on guard against this uh, Jade Helm 15. We haven't really talked about this on this show, uh, Desi Doyen. We, we need to get into this. We need to. Maybe we'll invite Alex Jones on the show. Oh, boy. To tell us 
about the dangers of, of Jade Helm down in Texas. Do you think he'll come on and, and give us the skinny on that? He probably would come yeah. on and give us his idea of what's actually happening, which, of course, isn't what is actually happening. Oh, says you. Yes, yeah, says me. Says you. Yeah, for those people who don't know, Jade Helm 15 is really just the name of a special ops military exercise. The military, the uh, U.S. military, likes to drop special forces into unfamiliar terrain and uh, so that they can practice on what it's like on a place they haven't been to before because that's how their missions usually work. But people offer yeah. their private locations, their private ranches, their private land in order to conduct these uh, these operations. Says you. Says yes. you because you are a government apologist and you want to hoax the people of Texas, even though you have family in Texas, Desi Doyne. You <laughs> yes, are I setting do. up your family for a federal government takeover of Texas, and you don't care. You know, anyway, well, yeah. Well, I think what's interesting about the I, the idea is that, um, you know, the former uh, governor, uh, Rick Perry, Rick Perry yeah. when he was in, uh, he had no problem with hosting these special ops, special training. But that, of course, was during the Bush administration. And then, I don't know, something happened to change the way Texas responds to <laughs> the U.S. military. It's like in 2005, it's, it was okay, yeah. but now it's not. But I now they no longer support our troops, yeah, um, it seems. Speaking of Rick Perry, by the way, uh, we have a new story on Rick Perry uh, over at bradblog.com uh, written by uh, our own uh, P. Diddy, Perry Dorrell, actually, uh, on uh, Rick Perry's felony trial, which, as you mentioned, the former governor has been charged with two felonies and uh, and yet he still thinks he's running for president. Apparently, he's not very worried about those felony charges for some odd reason. Uh, and we may have the uh, explanation as to why uh, Rick Perry is not worried about those charges. Yes, he has an ace in the hole and on the bench for his own trial. I'll point you to bradblog.com right now to read uh, that story. We may have more about that later this week. Um, joining us shortly, as I mentioned, will be former Republican Congressman Bob Inglis, a very conservative six-term congressman at least until he was primaried out by tea partiers, I guess, for, for not being uh, conservative enough, or at least for having the gall, having the unmitigated gall enough to believe in climate change and want to do something about it. He's still fighting that good fight, even after being tossed out on his ear, and so I'm very much looking forward to that com uh, conversation with the congressman as he was awarded this week the John F. Kennedy Profile in Courage Award for taking uh, that stand on climate change, an unpopular stand in his now-crazy party. So we will, uh, we will be talking to him in a little bit. Uh, but first, uh, after uh, Pam Geller and her American Freedom Defense Initiative attempt to incite violence, frankly, over the weekend under the masquerade of a so-called free speech event where they offer $10,000 prize uh, for the most offensive cartoon of the Prophet Muhammad. It resulted in uh, two people showing up, two terrorists, frankly, showing up and uh, trying to shoot up the place. They were killed uh, when they showed up outside that event and when they started shooting, ISIS is now claiming responsibility uh, for that. I'm somewhat dubious. I guess it's uh, they can claim responsibility if if they said, "Oh yeah, well we went on Twitter and called on people to go do go do something," and then somebody did something. So uh, maybe that's how they how they claim responsibility. Um, 
Of course, the folks on the right are delighted about this because now they can say, uh, you see, ISIS is now operating inside our country. Yeah, well, not very effectively, and uh, a hell of a lot more people are killed every day by guns than uh, those two that uh, down in Texas, in Garland, Texas. In any event... Um, it's now the the backlash is sort of happening. Even folks who might otherwise support Pam Geller and these right wingers, they're now coming forward to say, you know what, Pam, knock it off. You're being an idiot. You're going out there. You're inciting violence. Now, yes, we have free speech in this country, but you may be shocked to learn there are limits on free speech. There are limits on all of those rights, pretty much, that are, are defined in the Constitution. They are not absolute. You can't, for example, most famously, you can't go to a, uh, a a crowded theater and shout fire. You can't do it. You can't cause a panic. You can't incite violence. You have freedom of speech, but you can't say, uh, hey, go out there and kill someone. So, you know, the idea that any of these rights are absolute and you need to go out and prove it by doing something that a lot of people know could well incite violence is just stupid. And that's what one of the things we've been talking about uh, this week. Now, the mayor of Garland, Texas, what's his name here? Douglas, uh, uh, Douglas Athis, Athis, is that how you say it? Athis. Uh, Athis has come out and uh, tried to defend his city. And in fact, it was his city. The reason they chose Garland, Texas, apparently, is because uh, 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 recently there was an anti- Islamophobia event that was held at this very same community center. So, of course, these jerks, Pam Keller, Bam Geller, these jerks from New York City decided to come on out to, to Garland to hold their hate event, uh, hate event. And this is what the uh, the Garland mayor had to say in response today. Of course, we've been happy if they'd stayed in New York and had their activity there, but they chose to stay, come here. From all reports I've gotten from our officers were on the scene. Most of the people there were not from Garland. They were not even from Texas. So this does not involve Garland. Garland was just named uh, one of the most diverse cities in the United States. We speak 114 languages in our school district. We're extremely diverse. We have no ethnic majority. And so Garland was not participating in this as a city in any shape, fashion. This is an outside group that just happened to pick our city for their event. Outside agitators as they like to say when there are uh, protests and so forth elsewhere. Um, so, uh, Desi, you have some family. You have a lot of family yeah. uh, in Dallas uh, and actually in Garland, I think, right? Yeah, right I have family here. in Garland. I yeah. have family in the entire Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, as I w- it's called. Oh, very nice. Yes. I, was, uh, I, was, I was surprised to hear him talking about the diversity in Dallas because, you know, when I think about Dallas, when I go to visit uh, your wingnut right-wing family. <laughs> They're not all wingnut right-wingers. Uh, everybody's got the crazy brother-in-law. They... Everybody's got the right-winger in the family. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, they're not all that way. No. Yeah, sure. Okay. Well, we'll go with that. Yeah. Um, anyway, so, uh, you know, I have this impression that there's a lot of uh, folks that are Republicans, certainly down there uh, in Dallas County. Oh, certainly. Uh, and so when he talked about diversity, I thought, huh, I didn't realize Garland was that diverse. I looked at their Wikipedia page and I see that the Hawaiian Falls Water Park opened in 2003 after the Wet n' Wild closed in 1993. Is that what is that? What no, I don't think that's what diverse? they're talking about. Oh, OK. Yeah. Well, no, you're right. He's not because I I looked further at the Wikipedia article and it turns out, indeed, um, 
14.5% African-American population there, 9.5% Asian population there, 37.8% Hispanic and Latino population. And in fact, uh, non-Hispanic whites were 36.7% of the population, uh, which is down from 86.5% in 1980. So the white people is disappearing in uh, from Garland, Texas, and and of course that's one of the reasons why Republicans in Texas because it's a similar story elsewhere in in the Lone Star State, and that's one of the reasons why Texas is working so hard to keep those people, those uh, non-white people, from voting. And uh, this is uh, this is why they are instituting this uh, photo ID restriction, even though it was found to be unconstitutional and a violation of the Voting Rights Act by a federal judge this year. They're challenging that. They are appealing that decision. Um, but, uh, yeah, the white folks are becoming the minority down there. Uh, so, you know what? Uh, I'm good with that. In the meantime, not just the mayor of Garland has come out against this event, but as I said, other people who you might, you know, think were allies for this cause, this so-called free speech cause, are now calling these people out. Fox News' Greta Van Susteren says that Pam Geller and these creeps went too far with their stupid event. Here was uh, here was Greta yesterday on her uh, On the Record show. Protect our police. Do not recklessly lure them into danger. And that's what happened in Garland, Texas, at the Mohammed Cartoon Contest. Yes, of course, there is a First Amendment right, and of course, it's very important, but the exercise of that right includes using good judgment. It is one thing for someone to stand up for the First Amendment and put his own you-know-what on the line. But here, those insisting they were defending the First Amendment were knowingly putting others' lives on the line. The police. Everyone knew this event would unglue some who might become violent, and the police had no choice but to do their jobs and be there to protect against violence. We're lucky no police officer lost his or her life. So, you know, when you lose Fox News, Pam Geller, <laughs> uh, it can't get much worse. But as it turns out, it can get much worse. Speaking of cartoons, Donald Trump even rang in on this. And even Donald Trump, who is wrong about everything, appears to have been right uh, about this, which is kind of amazing. Uh, his comments on uh, Pam Geller and how dumb she is. She's a provocateur. All she's doing is provoking and taunting people. And this country has enough problems right now. All right, so we have to, to be you, tough you... and we have to be strong. But you know what, Neil? We sure. have to be smart, not dumb. So there you go. You won't find me agreeing very often with the, the Donald. But he's got this right. I, and I've been asking since the beginning, even since, you know, Charlie Hebdo and that horrible massacre there. And I support their right uh, for free speech. I support Pam Geller's right for free speech. I do not support the right to incite violence. And I question, though you have the right, I question what the hell is wrong with you when you're, you know, picking on an entire religious faith? an entire religious belief, a minority religious uh, uh, belief, certainly in this country, certainly in Garland, Texas, certainly in Paris. Um, it's one thing go against the extremists. It's another thing entirely uh, to go against a religious faith just because. Uh, just because you can. And to go uh, to a place where you know you're going to uh, probably incite violence. That's what she did. That was her goal. 
mission accomplished, which is, of course, why she then took to her, her website thereafter and declared, this is war. Well, if that's what you want, Pam Geller, I guess you got it. Uh, wish you didn't have to drag all of us into it with you, though. Your stupid war. All right, a quick break here. We're going to come back with uh, Republican Congressman, former Republican Congressman Bob Inglis. Right after this break, you're listening to Brad Friedman on the Bradcast. Stay with us. Hi, this is Dan Ellsberg, Pentagon Papers whistleblower, and you're listening to the Bradcast. <laughs> Welcome back. This is your Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com with you here. Yeah, Bob Inglis may be walking on the sun. Uh, former Congressman Bob Inglis is now the executive director of the Energy and Enterprise Initiative based at George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia. They are a grassroots group guided by the conservative principles of free enterprise and economic growth, limited government, liberty, accountability, and reasonable risk avoidance to solve our nation's energy and climate challenges, according to their website. Formerly, Congressman Inglis served as the Republican U.S. House Representative from South Carolina's 4th District for 12 years where he was a member of the House Science Committee and ranking member of the Energy and Environment Subcommittee until he was replaced by Tea Partiers in the 2010 primary contest in South Carolina, in no small part due to his belief in science and concerns about climate change. He's also featured in the new documentary film uh, Merchants of Doubt, which highlights the comparison of tactics used by climate change deniers to those same tactics used by big tobacco in previous decades to lie about the dangers of cigarettes. Earlier this week, Bob received the John F. Kennedy Profile in Courage Award for working to engage conservatives on climate change and, quote, for the courage he demonstrated when reversing his position on climate change after extensive briefings with scientists and discussions with his children about the impact of atmospheric warming on our future. Congressman Bob Inglis, it's a great honor to have you here. Welcome to the broadcast, sir. Thank you, Brad. Great to be with you. Uh, all right. Uh, you are a rare breed indeed, a Republican who is working on climate action. And, of course, you paid a price for that. I want to talk about that price in a bit and the solutions you're now offering. But you were opposed to any action on climate change originally, as I understand it. What changed for you specifically? Uh, tell us how your evolution uh, came about from being a, a climate change denier, I guess, to uh, someone who is really working now for action and has paid a price for it, in fact. Yeah, well, let's see. So for six years, my first six years in Congress, I said that climate change was hooey, uh, Al Gore's imagination. I hadn't looked into it at all. All I knew was that Al Gore was for it, and therefore I was against it. <laughs> um, and then I was uh, out in commercial real estate law again for six years. I ran again in '04 for the uh, for Congress, and my son, our oldest of five kids, was voting for the first time that year. And he came to me and said, "Dad, I'll vote for you." 
but you're going to clean up your act on the environment. And so uh, his four sisters agreed. His mother had a new constituency, you know, on, on my hands. So I, um, that was step one. Step two was going to Antarctica and seeing the evidence in the ice core drillings. That was a science committee trip. And then step three, another another science committee trip, this one with a stop in the Great Barrier, uh, the Great Barrier Reef. Snorkeling was an Aussie climate scientist who was showing us coral bleaching. And I could tell that he and I shared a worldview before we shared any words, uh, because I could tell that he was worshiping the God of creation. He was not worshiping the creation itself. And um, so afterwards we had a chance to talk. He told me about conservation changes that he was making in his life in order to love God and love people. People will never know because they'll come long after us. And I got right inspired by that. I thought I, I wanted to be like Scott, um, mm. loving God and loving people. So I came home and introduced the Raise Wages Cut Carbon Act of 2009. And uh, that turned out to not, not be particularly good political timing um, with the Great Recession underway and me representing probably the reddest district and the reddest state in the nation. Well, you you talk about uh, you know being on this trip uh, with for the science committee. Surely there were other Republicans on the trip as well. Uh, where are they? And I mean, do they take these trips and see the same things that you saw that so concerned you? And if so, why are there not more Republicans in the U.S. House? At least until you got thrown out. And we'll get to that in a second. But you know, at least until that point, why weren't there more Republicans sort of joining you in 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 this effort to cut carbon emissions? Well, I think that mostly what what explains it is the Great Recession. You know, people were uh, so worried about home values and their uh, house payments, their 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 job. Uh, understandably concerned about those things, and they they put those higher on the list, um, and climate change, which seemed, you know, a decade or two away, is something they could put down at the bottom of the list. And so that's uh, mostly, I think, what explains the sort of uh, flight from reason, if you will. Yeah. Um, uh, but, but it's also true that, um, um, that conservatives, in a lot of cases, um, uh, haven't seen a solution that they like yet. It seems that the solutions have been offered, things like cap-and-trade or a regulatory solution, um, really involve the growth of government that's anathema to conservatives. And so what we've got to do at republicn.org, that's republicn.org, is show conservatives that actually there's a, a small government answer. It's, it's just eliminating all the subsidies for all the fuels, including the biggest subsidy of them all, which is being able to dump into the trash dump of the sky without paying for, without paying a tipping fee, you know? And so um, if we charge for those emissions, uh-huh. like we charge for deposits into the city landfill, then we'll change the economics and fix the market distortion. And then the environmental consequence will take care of itself. And so that kind of a solution is something that conservatives can rally around. Um, once the Great Recession keep, you know, keeps on leaving us, you know, if we, if we can finally see the back of that thing, then um, 
I think that conservatives will come back to ourselves as people who, of course, uh, celebrate the science and, of course, think that the free enterprise system can solve climate change. I, I hope you're right, Congressman. I worry you're not. And here's why. Uh, you know, the, the idea of, of cap and trade in the first place, uh, creating this, this market-based uh, incentive for uh, companies to, to curb their emissions, that was a conservative idea in the first place. And that was something that, uh, you know, Al Gore seemed to say, since you had mentioned Al Gore, okay, we'll do it the conservative way. We'll do it with a, a, a free market solution, uh, so to speak. Uh, and it seemed like Republicans were willing to come aboard. Then something changed. And I don't think it was Al Gore. I actually think it might be Citizens United. But uh, something changed where... Republicans could no longer even get behind their own conservative ideas. So I'm worried, even if, uh, you know, you and others move forward with this idea of a carbon tax, because essentially, and correct me if I'm wrong, but that's sort of what you're talking about here. You're talking about taking away subsidies for all energy and simply charging the companies, I guess, the, the, the large uh, polluters, a tax for how much they pollute, which is going to hurt fossil fuel companies much more, say, than it would uh, hurting a solar company or a wind company. Am I, am I right about that? Well, it, it'll basically make it so that everybody's responsible for all their cost. Um, and so, of course, that responsibility, if you can evade it, you want to evade it as long as you can get away with you know, socializing your soot with the health cost or socializing the long-term climate cost associated with your emissions, as long as, you know, you can get away with it, people mm-hmm. will try to get away with it. But what we're talking about here is accountability. And, yeah, we're talking about at RepublicIn.org what our, our grandest solution would be a revenue-neutral, border-adjustable carbon tax. Um, or, if you prefer, a 100% returnable emissions tax. And, and explain you, that in, yeah, in, in human being terms. What does that actually mean? Yeah. What that means is that we would, we would tax uh, CO2 emissions um, based on the harm they're causing. And that's, that's a big debate about what that harm would be, but, it, but economists tell us that that can be priced. Mm-hmm. And so we'd... Um, We'd have a big debate. If we get through the denial and into the debate about that, we'd be celebrating at republican.org. Um, so, um, but what, if you set the price at the, the harm that is being done by that next ton of CO2 that's emitted, and then you charge that to the fuels, in other words, attach it um, at the mine or at the pipeline, and at the pipeline uh-huh. then um, that, of course, means that energy prices go up all downstream. So far, that's not sounding like a very politically uh, saleable position, right? Right. But you combine it with a dollar-for-dollar tax cut in some existing tax. So it could be um, personal income taxes. It could be payroll taxes. It could be corporate income taxes. Or it could be a dividend. Just return the money to taxpayers, uh, sort of like the Alaska Permanent Fund. Um, And so any of those is acceptable to us. The idea is so that there be no growth of government, that we're not here at republican.org talking about um, a new tax that gives the government new revenue to do new things, but rather a, a tax that just 
fixes this market distortion and then returns the revenue to the people. Um, and another important part of that uh, is that it be border adjustable so that there's a way to collect a tax on imports such that um, it would become in China, for example, interest to impose that tax in their own economy. Mm-hmm. And so they could therefore collect the tax and remit it to Beijing rather than paying a tax on entry to the United States and remitting that to Washington. And let me be clear, when you when you mention mar- this market distortion, because uh, I think that a lot of Republicans, a lot of you know libertarians, they would regard adding a tax like this, uh, you know, to to uh, force a a certain uh, outcome. They would consider that to be a market distortion. But what I, I if I understand you correctly, you're describing what we currently have as a market distortion. Is it because? polluters are allowed to pollute for free and pay no price for it, and therefore the cost of coal, the cost of uh, uh, gas, oil, and so forth is artificially lower than it would be if these energy companies were required to pay the full price for the damage that they do to the environment, to health, to everything else? Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, Absolutely. That's correct. And I think that um, um, I don't know an economist that would disagree with you and I that that's a problem. Um, and uh, they, Whether they're um, uh, left politically or way right politically, um, every economist I've ever spoken to would say, of course, that is a problem. Uh, because it's so like this. If I'm English Industries uh-huh. and I can get away with it, right. I, will so- I will socialize my soot, and out of my smokestack will come soot that... Um, that fouls my neighbor's lungs, mm-hmm. well, most of them cough it up. Right. But some of them end up at the hospital, and we're paying through Medicare, Medicaid, or if they're on my same insurance carrier, I'm paying that way. So one way or another, we're paying the full cost of English Industries soot. It's just we're not paying in the cost of my widgets that I'm making. Mm-hmm. And so um, it's a good deal for English Industries as long as I can get away with it. And it's a great deal for my customers uh, because they get these low price widgets. It's a terrible deal for my neighbors mm. who are getting the soot in their lungs. Um, and so that's a market, that's a classic market distortion that, uh, like I say, left, right, or center economists would say that's just intolerable. You, you, can't, you can't have uh, that, uh, people get, you can't have English industries getting away with that. And I think that's an important point to make, that the market distortion is now. Now is when we have the market distortion, because I think a lot of people don't understand that, and they see action on climate change as an attempt to distort the market, but it's already distorted. Yes, that's a very important point, yeah. It is currently a problem of the lack of accountability, and one of the key philosophical underpinnings, really, of of conservative thought mm-hmm. is that humans are responsible moral actors. In fact, we conservatives have a hard time with progressives who are always, you know, excusing people's behavior by saying, oh, they're a product of their environment, or, you know, if you grew up the way they did, maybe you'd go shoot somebody too or something. Um, you know, we passionately believe as conservatives that people are responsible moral actors and that they must be held accountable. And if you don't do that, then all kinds of bad things happen. 
well, that's where we are on climate. We're allowing people to get away with socializing their soot, and they will do it as long as we let them get away with that lack of accountability. Congressman Bob Inglis, you talked uh, during our conversation here about being a conservative, about uh, you know taking the correct moral action. You talked about God. Clearly, you're a real conservative. Uh, the American Conservative Union gave you a rating of 93. You got 100% from the Christian Coalition, 100% from National Right to Life, an A, uh, a grade with the National Rifle Association. And yet, your own party threw you out in 2010, replaced you, I think, with Trey Gowdy, if, if I recall correctly, in South Carolina, uh, threw you out. Uh, you're the poster child, frankly, for uh, moderate Republicans, and you're quite conservative. You accept the science now of climate change. So if you got thrown out, uh, you know, A, how do you expect Republicans who are still serving to ever join you in this effort? And B, would you, uh, would you have done anything different? If you had the choice, if you could run that election, that primary election, I guess, over back in uh, in 2010. Well, uh, the second one's easy to answer. No, I wouldn't do anything differently because, you know, well, in terms of the uh, taking the position, no, I would not have changed that. I might have uh, worked harder to be more patient with people and explaining it a little bit better. Um, but um, but I wouldn't change my position because I think that, you know, it's. It's, it's one thing to eke out uh, re-election. Um, it's quite another to win the future. And I'd really rather be about winning the future than about eking out re-election. Mm. Um, and so, uh, so I, don't have, uh, I don't have regrets there. And it's, uh, it's not a path I would have chosen, but it's, it's been a good path because this, uh, this idea of fixing this market distortion is the best idea I came across in Congress. And so... Now that I'm out of Congress, I've got the opportunity full-time to work on this crucial issue that really is uh, vital to, uh, to, to the future of our children and grandchildren. And so I'm, 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 I'm content with that. Um, so as to the, um, your other question as to what, uh, how we can convince other Republicans yeah. to take this sort of action, I think what it takes is is um, an awareness that the Great Recession was a particularly topsy-turvy time. And, of course, it was hard in those circumstances to be talking or be having the conversation that you and I are having now. But as, we, uh, as the economy improves and as um, we face, conservatives face expanded electorates, particularly in 2016, where there would be many millennials voting, uh, many independents voting. I think uh, more and more conservatives are coming to the realization that, you know, you really don't want to be retro on climate. You don't want to look like you're just out of sync with uh, where uh, both the culture are, but also where the science is. And um, so I think it's, it, it has to do with the timing of the Great Recession is what, what caused my loss more than um, and now. It's, it's a different situation, and I think it can be done more safely. Congressman, you talk about, uh, well, I, I love the line, you don't want to be retro on climate. And, of course, I agree with you. I'm worried whether uh, your fellow uh, Republicans do and whether your uh, Republican voters do because— 
you know, you talk about the expanded electorate in 2016. Well, we've now have, I think, uh, six uh, Republican candidates now declared gunning for that uh, 2016 presidential nomination. Every single one of them appears to be a climate denier at this point of some sort. Some believe that, okay, yeah, well, finally they agree. Oh, yeah, climate's changing, but it's not our fault. Man has nothing to do with it. Climate always changes. But across the board, uh, you know, including Mike Huckabee, who has said, uh, you know, don't be worried about a sunburn. Be worried about ISIS. We don't have time for this nonsense. I mean, every one of these Republicans that are running for president right now seem to be climate change deniers. So I'm not sure I share the optimism about 2016 that you do. How can you make me feel better about that? And, and what can everyday Americans do to, to help get that point across? Well, there, there are more than six that will be running. And yes. So, uh, um, so uh, some potentials that are out there, you know, Lindsey Graham, my senator here in South Carolina, um, is not a climate denier. Uh, he may end up running. Uh, I, I hope that we see Jeb Bush take a uh, non-denier position. And I would think that it's possible that Rand Paul may help explain to libertarians that um, really we libertarians, I'm a Republican, but he can say we real libertarians passionately believe in accountable, transparent marketplaces. And what we have right now is not that. We have lack of accountability for emissions. And so, um, so I think that uh, there's, there's going to surely, like you say, there, there are a good number of candidates in the Republican presidential contest that will be... Um, uh, showing the styles of the Great Recession, but mm -hmm. I think that that's going to look owes to a very Great Recession as we get toward the the finals of that contest, um, and um, it'll be affected also by the Senate electoral map. You know, in the last cycle, the Senate races were in places like North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia. Mm -hmm. um, in the 2016. Senate cycle. The races will be in New Hampshire, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Arizona. And so those are places that have uh, very different electorates um, and places that um, I don't think you want to be retro on climate. Um, maybe you, you, you could be retro on climate during the Great Recession because everybody was in a very sour mood. And if you could tell that electorate that this is one thing you don't have to worry about, climate change. Uh, you got to worry about your house value. you got to worry about your job, but you do not have to worry about climate change. Well, um, well that, that's being different um, now that the economy is improving. You're, you're very hopeful. I, I hope that you're right. I, uh, I, I had asked uh, some, some other journalists and uh, some environmental folks that I know if they had any questions for you. I want to hit one or two of those in the few minutes we have left. But before I hit those, uh, Desi Doyen, our producer here and my co-host on the nationally syndicated Green News Report, uh, has a question that I know she wanted to get to you. Des? Hi, Bob. Uh, just real quick, you know, you talked about the Senate landscape for 2016, and we were talking about the GOP contenders for 2016. We know that there's going to be a climate treaty, an international climate treaty, that's going to be negotiated in Paris in December, right in time for the heavy 2016 campaign season. And that means that whoever gets elected in 2017 as the president, uh, whoever is in the Congress in 2017, um, those are going to be the people who 
will be considering this international climate treaty. What do you see are the prospects for that getting ratified in the Senate? Of course, it depends on what's in it, and um, it depends on whether it is uh, resolved by then. Or, you know, uh, I, I think that um, I, that's where I've. I, I think it does become a lot of um, a lot of hope. So, uh, hope so that um, something can be agreed upon that is uh, useful. Um, I've I put more faith actually in a bold commercial move by the United States that I do uh, international agreements on this topic. And what I'm talking about there is is, is this border adjustment uh, that I was speaking of earlier. This, that's the way to get our trading partners to join us in this because it becomes in their interest to do so. At, uh, at this point, what we're relying on is the altruism of a whole lot of um, people that are part are countries that are part of the tragedy of the commons um, and that's that's hard to pull off but what's probably easier is a um, is a bold commercial move you know there for example there's some there's some cell phone companies that now offer contractless service mm-hmm. um, and I just wish they were bigger because my stinking company um, I'm I'm uh, I'm indebted to them for I think ten more years or something <laughs> for my iPhone, and uh, you know if those l- smaller companies were just a little bit bigger, maybe they could force my behemoth into offering the same deal. But here's it here's the thing on when it comes to um, emissions taxes, the the United States economy is the behemoth, and if we just act and say, listen, this is what we've just done. We have priced carbon dioxide within our own economy, and we're going to collect it on entry into the United States with your goods. Now, you got a choice. You can keep on paying that tax on entry, or why don't you go back home and do it, do it in your own economy, and then you won't have any adjustment coming in here, and you'll be paying that tax to your home country, not to our country. So you sort of put them in the position of making it in their interest. I think that's more more likely, frankly, than than a successful agreement, um, because uh, perhaps the best that we can hope out of Paris would be something like uh, uh, standards on how to measure mm-hmm. um, the commitments that countries make. Well, those are still just commitments, mm-hmm. and, and it would be good to have agreement on what the standards for measurement are, but, but really we've got to get solid action. And, and the way to get to solid action, I think, is, is through this bold commercial move. And uh, we'll see if we can get to that bold commercial move uh, without a treaty, without the that incentive of the rest of the world uh, staring us down, frankly. A uh, couple of uh, very quick questions before I let you go. Congressman, uh, as I said, I had asked some uh, journalists and uh, environmental journalists if they had any questions for you. Uh, I, we've got just a few minutes, so let's see if we can real quick uh, run through these uh, do, do you think that uh, Senator Sanders entering the, uh, uh, the the race now for 2016 on the Democratic side will compel a discussion about the climate crisis in the 2016 election cycle overall? All, all voices are helpful, I suppose. Just some turn heads. I don't know that um, that uh, Bernie Sanders, who uh, I enjoy personally, but. Uh, we disagree politically, obviously. Um, I'm a conservative, and Bernie says he's a socialist. Um, I, I am. 
uh, I, I don't know that his uh, he'll be turning many heads. What we need really is conservative uh, conservative candidates. So that turns heads. I think he might agree with you, though. Have you have have you gotten to speak with him? about your uh, ideas for energy, the carbon tax, and so forth? Because I would be surprised if he didn't, uh, Senator Sanders didn't say, yeah, that sounds good to me. Oh, I, I think that there are many on the left that would agree that this, this works. Um, and, and, of course, they're coming at it from a different, uh, for, for a different reason, or it would come to that conclusion perhaps by different analysis. And, um, but they can get to the same conclusion. That's the beauty of this solution, is that it really is acceptable on the left and on the right. Um, the right, because it is what we passionately believe. We believe in accountable marketplaces. Um, the left, because there, there are many on the left that can see the power of free enterprise and the dynamism that would be unleashed here for innovation that would bring down our emissions faster than government regulations could ever imagine. Uh, very quickly, I'll just uh, let's leave it with this one. Uh, do you understand, Congressman, why people are, frankly, angry at Republicans' intransigence on climate? That comes from uh, Peter Sinclair of ClimateCrocs.com. Do you understand the, the really the anger that a lot of people have, not just Democrats, uh, about this whole climate change denial industry that seems to be growing, not shrinking on the right? Yeah, I think that, uh, um, well, uh, I, I share an aversion for that, uh, that, that industry that you just described. Um, and I hope that many people will go see Merchants of Doubt. Um, and if they do, I think that the reaction is, can't believe those people are getting away with that. Mm. And um, I hope that's the reaction. It's um, in theaters uh, now. It's coming out on Netflix in July. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Uh, Here's the thing to do. Uh, get uh, conservative friends to go see that. Challenge them to go see it. Challenge my friends to go see it, because when they do, I think what they're going to see is that see, these people are pulling the wool over our eyes. And that's just unacceptable. Bob Inglis defines President Kennedy's vision for a profile in courage, said Jack Schlossberg, uh, the uh, grandson of President Kennedy, during the award ceremony this week when Bob Inglis was given the John F. Kennedy profile in courage. He said, my grandfather's legacy is kept alive by Bob's courageous decision to sacrifice his political career to demand action on the issue that will shape life on Earth for generations to come. Uh, Bob Inglis, I hope the rest of your party takes notice of that and the idea that these decisions now will shape life on Earth for generations to come. I think it is that important. So uh, thank you, sir, for your service. Thank you for continuing to speak out, even after you paid a price with your own party. And uh, thank you for joining us today on the broadcast. Great to be with you, Brad. Thank you very much. And you. Let's do it again soon. Once again, that was former Congressman Bob Inglis. You can check out his website at the Energy and Enterprise Initiative at RepublicN, that's E-N dot org, RepublicN dot org. Okay, we're going to take a quick break and come back with much more Bradcast straight ahead. I'm Brad Friedman, and this is your Bradcast.
Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman of bradblog.com. Yes, Bob Inglis is walking a lonely road, I would say. Um, fascinating conversation. And I wonder I wonder if he'll be able to... He's incredibly optimistic, Desi Doyen. I, I wonder if he'll be able to convince any of his fellow Republicans to join him in his quest. You know, I think that maybe if we're lucky, the tide is changing. That you know, dem- that the Republicans are starting to start starting to see the demographic shift. That uh, Republican college students mm-hmm. and youth uh, generally don't agree with them on the denial of climate science, and that want to see action. So, if the millennial youth actually come out and vote, then that might actually help change them in their. You position. mean if they come out and vote against them? Right. Is basically what you're asking for. And then uh, they don't have a reason to change it because, hey, those people aren't going to vote for me anyway. Uh, listen, I think that he's incredibly optimistic. I'm so grateful that he is. Yeah. Grateful that he he joined us to, to talk about it. Um, I just uh, I'm not as optimistic as he is. That's all I'm saying. I guess, you know, maybe if we look 10 years down the road, maybe the, maybe they're going to get it. Uh, but for 2016 and for that race and for. People jumping in who are not climate deniers. I mean, if the best we have to go, uh, you know, to, to look for is Lindsey Graham getting into the uh, 2016 race. You know, A, he ain't going to win. He ain't going right. anywhere. Uh, and B, I think they'll, uh, you know, ignore Lindsey Graham, even if Lindsey Graham comes out with the right position on this. I have not noticed Lindsey Graham to be a great leader <laughs> on these things. Remember, he was... He was working on on climate in the Senate. Yes, he agreed with his buddy, Senator John McCain, before the 2008 election that climate change was a problem. They actually were going to introduce legislation. And then 2008 happened and everybody flip-flopped. Well, before the 2008 election, it wasn't the uh, election where they flip-flopped. It was 2010 when Citizens United passed. And now... They've got to rely on the Koch brothers, the biggest you know, climate deniers in the world, for their campaign uh, the money. And so all of a sudden, all of these Republicans, uh, Mitt Romney, John McCain, Lindsey Graham, one after another, Sarah Palin, who used to want to take action on climate change, all of a sudden they're like, what, uh, what climate change? Never heard right. of cl- climate change. That's ridiculous. The climate's always changing. Man has nothing to do with it. So anyway, I'm not as optimistic as he is, but I'm glad he is optimistic and uh, and that you're somewhat optimistic. And maybe you'll uh, make me less curmudgeonly. We'll try. But I doubt it. Speaking of being curmudgeonly, uh, yes, carbon dioxide. <laughs> this is right on schedule. Uh, it levels it hits a new record. Globally, carbon dioxide has now passed 400 parts per million in March For the first time on record, according to federal researchers at NOAA, this uh, had originally happened, as you know, Desi, we talked about this on the Green News Report when it happened. Yes, uh, the first time that it happened. Right. Now, this is it's staying above 400 parts per million for an entire month. That's never happened before. And globally, it's so it happened in in the Arctic in 2012. It happened at the. Uh, Mauna Loa, how do you say that? Mauna Loa Mauna in Loa Hawaii. in Hawaii in 2013. But now it's globally uh, 400 parts per million. Uh, the first time that has happened 
let's see. For an entire month. The, well, no, but the first time that has happened since the Pliocene epoch, it, three million to five million years ago. So um, let's see. The, uh, here's what uh, Peter Tons uh, at uh, NOAA said. He's the lead scientist of the Global Greenhouse Gas Reference Network. He said this marks the fact that humans burning fossil fuels have caused global carbon dioxide concentrations to rise more than 120 parts per million since pre-industrial times. Half of that rise occurred since 1980. Yeah, it's pretty bad. But, you know, climate's changing. Oh, it just always changes. It just happens to change in the past 30 years faster than it's ever changed before. Faster than it changed 3 million to 5 million years ago. Um, anyway, so we got that. We also have a train on another oil bomb train on fire in uh, North Dakota. Yeah. The poor little city of, uh, Hedema, North Dakota, I think it's called. And they said, yes, that it's, no, I'm sorry, not Hedema, Heimdall, Heimdall, uh, North Dakota, where a oil train derailed and exploded about two miles outside of town. And they've evacuated the entire town until they know whether or not those rail cars are going to explode. N- no one is yet killed in this no injuries have been reported yet at all which is the good news the bad news is that new rules put in place by the obama administration just last week of course did not come soon enough to protect the folks of heimdall from the explosion outside their border and there's a lot of problems and concerns about those rules i suspect i know we will be talking about this tomorrow on our green news report yes um and it's good news and bad news is what these yeah some good news and bad news and it's not those rules are not in place those rules have been announced there's a period they discuss it a public conversation uh the oil companies sue for years on end before these things ever actually take place that's right uh and also uh on a green potentially green note another story that i know you're working on for uh the green news report tomorrow some good news and let's end today's show with some good news for a change shall we uh the ndp new democratic party up in alberta has swept the election up there for the first time. uh, In 40 years. Yeah, for the first time, the NDP uh, is going to be in the majority up there in Alberta. They ran on a policy of social change, promising to invest more in schools and hospitals, increasing taxes to corporations and the wealthy. But most of note to, uh, to my eyes when I read this thing is, this is Alberta. This is where the Alberta tar sands are. Yes, right? Fort McMurray, Alberta is is tar sand central. It looks like a moonscape up there, the way that they've destroyed the land. And yes, it looks like Albertans are finally coming out and saying, you know, hey, maybe we don't want this anymore. This is the uh, tar sands oil that's going to be uh, pushed down through the Keystone XL pipeline if that's that right. ever happens. That's right. So this could be a huge sea change up there in Alberta. I suspect we'll be talking about this more tomorrow on the Green News Report. And, of course, we've got much more for you on the Bradcast tomorrow. Thanks for joining us today. We will be with you same Brad time, same Brad channel tomorrow. Until then, as always, you can find me on the Facebooks and the Twitter at the Brad Blog, and, of course, at bradblog.com. My thanks to Desi Doyen, our producer, to Cynthia Cohn, our booking goddess, to Bob Inglis of republicann.org for joining us today. We'll see you tomorrow. Uh, Until then, you can find me at bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.